being early matters. So for cities that feel like right now they're not being affected, my question is, why wouldn't you look at your uh, next closest large city that's ahead of you in this epidemic and say, let's shut it down now so that we never get to that point? You know, you have the luxury of seeing the crisis unfold elsewhere. So act now and protect your people. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marion Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. On our next COVID-19 edition of Amplify Nursing, we check back in with public health researcher and behavioral epidemiologist, Dr. Allison Buttenheim, and social epidemiologist, Dr. Carolyn Canusio. Dr. Buttenheim is an associate professor of nursing at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Nursing and assistant professor of health policy at the Perelman School of Medicine. Dr. Canusio is the director of research for the Center for Public Health Initiatives and an assistant professor of family medicine and community health at the University of Pennsylvania. It's been two weeks since we last spoke with Dr. Buttenheim and Dr. Canusio about the coronavirus, and a lot has occurred in that time. Today, we discuss where we are at in this pandemic, how it has been handled locally and nationally, and what is still to come. Allison and Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us again today. I'm sure you guys are really busy. Allison, why don't you start with talking a little bit about how things have changed in the last couple of weeks since we last spoke? Sure. I mean, it seems like a whole different world, doesn't it? Um, Two weeks ago, you know, when Carolyn and I were talking with you, it was all about trying to get um, local and state leaders to to pay attention to calls for social distancing. We were still defining social distancing for people, um, talking about strategies to do that. And now, at least here in Pennsylvania, we're in um, what I don't like to call lockdown, where it's stay at home, safer at home mode. Um, and worldwide, uh, I was just looking at the dashboard, I think probably while we talk to you today, we'll tip over into half a million cases worldwide and almost 70,000 cases in the US. Um, so it's a different uh, it's a different time. And I think characterized right now by uh, intense uncertainty in the US at least on sort of how, how long will this last? you know, pushed by the president to have us open for business by Easter and the scientists and the doctors saying, uh, that's not, that's not how this looks. That's not how this is going to go. Yeah. I, I mean, I can appreciate his, his optimism, I guess, and want, wanting to wish this into going away, but it just doesn't seem like it's a, a feasible thing at this point where it doesn't even seem like we're even close to the tipping point in the U.S., No, and I think here in Philadelphia, we're bracing ourselves for an anticipated surge in the coming days and weeks. What the president is recommending seems to me highly out of tune with the science and with all the epidemiological models. So I think what that does is it really destabilizes people who are just trying to adapt to this idea of staying at home and participating aggressively, actively in social distancing, 
And I think it's a hard thing to tell people that the timeline is short when actually the timeline is going to be quite long and we want people to be mentally prepared for that. You can't really give a a great estimate, but how long is long in your opinion? You know, one interesting thing has been how, how many different models for this have been coming out over the past week. Um, lots of, of scientific mm-hmm. effort around um, the modeling. And, you know, I think in the range of were we to have something that looked like a national stay at home, like a real sort of national shutdown, if we could do that for four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, we'd really put a dent in that peak caseload that we don't want our hospitals to be hit with. One interesting aspect of that that is 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 complex and is hard to, to explain to folks is that if the, the more extreme version of that, um, Mark Lipsitch at Harvard is doing some fantastic work. He, he showed if we did a 60% reduction in people's social contact, which is pretty extreme, we have a, a, a sharp decline in cases going into the hospital right now compared to doing nothing, but a bigger rebound of cases later because fewer people will be immune because uh, fewer people will have gotten sick. Um, so another, another new conversation I think from two weeks ago is um, that this is not a, a one-time show, right? This is not a four to 12 week shut down and then we're done, we have to anticipate that there'll be multiple cycles of resurgence of cases. Um, And I don't know how we plan for that. I don't know how a school system or a university says, okay, next year we'll just turn it on and then turn it off and then turn it on and turn it off and send the kids home and bring them back. Um, And it's just another incredible layer of uncertainty. Yes, and I think that idea of multiple waves is daunting for all of us. And I keep telling people that we need to focus on two things. One is knowing that we will eventually get through this, but two is trying to manage risk today because for the population overall, I think it's it's too much to try to anticipate Um, how life will look over 12 or 18 months. And I think psychologically people can deal better with what they're doing for their families today, this week. But there is really agreement among scientists that this is not going to be resolved by Easter for sure. And if we look at what happened in China, the social distancing measures and the suppression measures were far more extreme than what we are engaged in now, even in Philadelphia, which has issued this stay-at-home order. In China, people were monitored by drones when they left their homes. They were given permission to go to the grocery store only once every few days. We're still allowing people to operate at their discretion on those essential uh, life-sustaining functions. But The Mm -hmm. kinds of control measures we're implementing here in the U.S. are not nearly as stringent as the control measures that were used in China to get the epidemic there under control. Kind of the downside of democracy, I guess, isn't it? (laughs) Leaving everyone at their own discretion. Right. And I think that we are going to have to wrestle with some extremely difficult issues related to isolation of people who are sick, because evidence from China is clear that in order to get the R0 below one and 
curtail the spread. They needed to identify people who were sick, even moderately sick, and isolate those people in central facilities, in temporary hospitals, for example, and provide supportive care, non-acute care, but interrupt the chain of transmission within households. And we are starting to develop a plan for that in Philadelphia, but not on the scale that we're going to need. And it's going to be potentially very difficult to get people to engage willingly of their own accord in leaving the home to be in these central isolation facilities if people are not acutely ill. It it seems to be very difficult also to get people to comply when, say, institutions, there's been a national call from the Surgeon General to stop elective cases to help um, keep resources, you know, save resources for when we really need them. And there are still really large, um, reputable institutions across the country that are completely ignoring that and continuing to operate as if there's nothing going on. Well, I think they're continuing to operate as if their bottom line depended on it, which it does. I mean, that those elective surgeries are the financial lifeblood for a lot of big health systems. And I think anticipating the big surge in COVID cases, um, it's it's pretty daunting to not that this is the right decision, but I mean I think I think there's some some real nervousness and concern about health system bottom lines when you turn off um, some of the elective, you know, fee for service uh, cases that that happen. And it's also probably difficult to turn away patients who feel like they're in pain or they want to get. Uh, health concern resolved. But it's also difficult even for health systems to think about this abstract invisible threat. When they're not seeing the high case counts in their communities, they're not thinking about the urgent pressure to conserve personal protective equipment, for example. But what I'm thinking about here in Philadelphia is our healthcare providers don't have the personal protective equipment they need we're not going to have the acute care resources we need to manage the surge here. And in Italy, part of what was happening was resource sharing across health systems so that patients could be transported to areas with fewer cases to receive care. So when we learn that another hospital system in our state is continuing to do elective surgeries, that has implications for residents across the state of Pennsylvania, for example. And we really need to be thinking not just about our own local health systems, but about how we're going to care for the population. I've been reading just different, some different scenarios about how things go and what I realized. And I I always felt like, you know, in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, medicine is a really big business. We have a major medical center on pretty much every corner in the city of Philadelphia. And yet we have less than 600 ICU beds, which to me doesn't really sound like a lot considering we have almost 1.6 million people in the city and, you know, even a mild surge of really sick people is going to need us. It means we're going to need a whole lot more than 600 ICU beds. It is daunting to look at those numbers. Go ahead, Allison. Well, and and Carolyn, I'm guessing you're more um, aware of some of these efforts than I am. Um, But I think here in Philadelphia, as elsewhere, hospitals and health systems are trying to think about how do we provide ICU level care in other places? 
you know, how do we sort of double up and use spaces and levels of care that we didn't think could be, uh, you know, used for intensive care. Um, you see, you know, you see these pictures of, um, I just saw a picture of the Yale gymnasium, you know, full of cots and beds and equipment next to the beds. You know, that's probably for, for lower level care, but there's just a lot of, um, of creativity in uh, finding capacity at all levels to make room for that surge. One of the things we're seeing here in Philadelphia this week, and Marion's been involved in this too, is that engineers are working around the clock to try to figure out how to first manufacture PPE locally, masks, face shields, ventilator parts, and they're trying to also re-engineer ventilators so that one ventilator can support multiple patients. It's incredible to see how many disciplines are required to address the problems of a pandemic. And it's also incredible to see how quickly people are willing to step in and identify a problem and then try to craft a solution. So that's impressive, but it's also daunting to me that we don't have a coordinated federal effort right now to ramp up production of needed PPE to ramp up production of ventilators, to turn the attention of factories across the country to rapidly making this needed equipment. There's a level of urgency at the local level that's truly felt and that people are acting on that is in such contrast with what we're hearing at the national level, especially from our president. And it's hard for me to understand how we can look at the same data and see the same anticipated surge in healthcare demand and yet not have a concerted national coordinated effort to make sure that hospitals and healthcare workers have the resources they need to care for the patients who are undoubtedly coming. Yeah, I wonder if that has to do with just kind of speculating that we're we're starting to deal with it like we we're seeing it coming we're actually physically looking at it here whereas maybe people far removed from actually staring at it are focused on maybe other metrics i think that's another shift this week compared to last week or the week before we have this whole debate and discourse around you know is it are we going to save the economy or are we going to save the patients especially the older patients and it's such a false dichotomy um you know dangerous on on many levels uh but the 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 idea that um in a, a pandemic and a mortality rate um that the levels that I think we're expecting wouldn't also be an enormous economic hit is just crazy. Um, and of course we want schools back open and we want small businesses and restaurants in our neighborhoods to be able to thrive. Uh, but, but pitching this, politicizing it and pitching it as this is a choice. We either, you know, you know, open, open the country up, uh, again and uh you know sorry we, we either open for business again and it's fine if the old people get bumped off you know or we put this stranglehold on on all american business to, to save a few people uh, is crazy it's crazy in terms of the economy and it's crazy in terms of our future well-being and our future functioning of our healthcare system because we can't afford to put our healthcare workers at this level of risk. It's not sustainable. We need 
this highly trained, highly educated, dedicated workforce to work throughout this pandemic, but to address all of our healthcare needs that predated the pandemic and that will persist beyond the pandemic. So in order to open the country up again, we will swamp our healthcare system and threaten the lives of the healthcare workers we so desperately need right now. That's really, I think, one of the scariest parts. You know, Allison, you talked about utilizing space and being creative with equipment to expand, but we already don't have enough critical care nurses and um, physicians to deal with our everyday load. Um, you know, my ICU uh, counterparts are always working overtime. They're, they're, you know, there's plenty of that around and there's, there's never been, you know, a shift where they're sending people home because there's nothing else to do. And that's pre-epidemic. Well, and I think there have been some really strong voices, um, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere. Every time people say, you know, PPE shortage, PPE shortage, there's some good pushback or at least, you know, uh, an and, a yes and message around and the people to run this stuff. I saw some neat, uh, a neat initiative underway, I think, at the University of Michigan to develop um, sort of a respiratory therapist extender uh, position. Um, and sort of get that stood up really quickly and get folks trained. Um, but it's true across the, the medical workforce, the nursing workforce, and all the other disciplines um, that, that support this kind of care. It is, a, it is a human resource constraint as well. Yes, and we hear colleagues who have trained in other subspecialties who are being asked to step up and provide acute care and they're daunted at the prospect. So here are some people who are very highly educated and trained, but they're not trained to support a patient who's on a ventilator. Um, so we are going to have to rapidly think about how to extend the skills of the workforce. China did some interesting things about the public health workforce that I hope we can do here too. So for example, they trained many lay people to do contact tracing. And here in the US, we're facing a shortage of people who know how to do contact tracing. So we're having to turn our attention to other public health strategies in some cities. So we're hoping that we can do things like uh, train students to do contact tracing so that those efforts can continue and some of the specialists in the health departments can then move on to other efforts or uh, you know, so that we can just extend the team of people who are capable of doing those important and fundamental tasks for controlling an epidemic. So really, we're asking people to step out of their everyday routines and to learn new skills on, you know, in so many different arenas. And the pace is incredibly daunting, and it's going to have to be sustained for a long period of time. So I wonder, what do you think people can do to cope with that, to cope with all of this uh, change in role and to sustain this kind of intensity of the effort over a long period of time? Do you have any thoughts about that, Allison? You know, we never we never set people up for um, a marathon on this one. It's, you know, we, we think of infectious disease outbreaks as being these kind of quick sprints. Um, and 
you know, one, this is not exactly to your question, Carolyn, but as I see my folks, my friends with small kids uh, start to try to do sort of homeschooling and, and uh, um, you know, keep their kids learning and engaged, I'm sort of inspired by uh, a real interest, I think, in, you know, middle school kids and high school kids in learning what epidemiology is and uh, learning of new ways of looking at data and, and gathering data. And I could see a similar sort of effort, um, you know, to, 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 train, to train public health folks in, or, or, you know, folks who are not in the public health workforce yet to do something like contact tracing, kind of opens up a whole new, um, a whole new field, a whole new potential uh, career. Maybe so. I, I I keep looking for silver linings here, and I sort of hope that you know every middle school kid now wants to be an epidemiologist when they grow up, um, <laughs> uh, and and that we also think creatively as a field about uh, you know different different skill sets, different levels um, in the workforce that can provide a lot of um, hopefully a lot of occupational opportunity going forward. Yeah, and so, it's also interesting to see what medical schools are doing now, and I think it was NYU that accelerated the graduation for their medical students so that they can get to work on the front lines. And I think on one hand, that's incredible for infusing our healthcare system with new workers. And on the other hand, think about how that must be to initiate your medical career during a pandemic. It's really going to shape the lives and entire careers of this whole generation coming up. Well, let's talk about that for the nursing workforce too, since this is the Amplify Nursing yeah. podcast. I know at Penn Nursing, our education mission right now, which is definitely you know still still going forward, is very much focused on getting our senior BSN students done this spring and licensed and into practice. And they're trying to do that without the ability to do a lot of hands-on, face-to-face clinical care. Um, it's been incredibly impressive to see the ramp up in simulation opportunities. And also at a regulatory level, a couple of states um, moving quickly to change um, regulations around how much of a nurse's clinical time can be fulfilled through simulation versus through face-to-face -face patient care. Um, I think our sim lab at Penn Nursing stood up something like 40 new simulation experiences in the past few weeks um, so that our senior BSN students can, can get that uh, virtual hands-on time uh, and, and meet the requirements to graduate. That's so, so in, great. And in, in this time, it's amazing to see how policies can be changed quickly to meet a need. So we've seen um, that telemedicine has been taking off and can now be reimbursed. And we've seen that uh, addiction treatment can be initiated now via telemedicine, which really is a game changer. And hopefully, as you said, Allison, a silver lining and one that I hope will change care practices beyond this pandemic. Yeah, I think these that's are going to be sorry. No, no, that's OK. I was just going <clears> to <throat> say these are all these are all really fantastic points. But we also have been underutilizing advanced practice nurses throughout the country for a significant period of time. And I, I mean, just for example, in Pennsylvania, um, CRNAs although we're the highest trained advanced practice nurses, are still considered RNs. So therefore, we're an entire workforce that right now 
don't have as much to do as we typically do. We're all ICU trained critical care nurses that aren't being utilized to any extent, their full extent of practice because of um, political barriers. What could what could be done? Right. What's the the, the, regulatory lever there? The governor in New York and and multiple states across the country have actually the governor in New York put forth an executive order that temporarily lifted all barriers to scope of practice for advanced practice nurses, including CRNAs, to utilize everyone to the full extent of their scope of practice. But the the thing is, is why does it take a pandemic to do that? Like we we still have had a shortage. We still have had issues. So why have there been all these barriers to practice all along? I mean, now that we're in the face of, you know, we got our head in the mouth of the lion and all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. Um, but why did it take to get to this point? But, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, we're still, you know, we're still there. We're, we're talking to the governor now about, you know, what we could be doing to help offset this. And, you know, to your end, to your point, Allison, that you talked about earlier about taking physicians who typically don't work in critical care and trying to get them into critical care. Well, when you have an entire, there are 3,000 CRNAs in the state who've all worked in critical care, you know, and manage, and manage vents every single day. So why are we, why are we training, you know, an endoscopist to work on a ventilator when we have this entire workforce who, who's able to do it? it? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That sounds, sounds like, like that should happen today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Go write that op-ed right now. Yes, exactly. There was also mm-hmm. really, and the letter to the governor. There was a very compelling uh, opinion piece on CNN's website about how Germany appears to have lower yeah. mortality rates and than other countries with similar COVID-19 caseloads. And one of the hypotheses that was pretty compelling was their higher uh, nurse per thousand population ratio. Um, now, obviously that's, you know, correlational and there'd be lots of interesting ways you could analyze that, but um, they have similar other structural measures of healthcare, um, similar sort of doctor ratios and bed ratios, um, but they have a, a much higher nurses per thousand population. And it, you know, it, it opened up a lot of questions about the extent to which nurses can be, um, you know, central to, uh, to tackling this epidemic on many fronts. They also well, the talked nurse- in that article about the high rates of testing in Germany yeah. so that yeah. lower acuity cases are coming to the attention of the healthcare system. And I'm hoping that we will see that ramp up substantially here because I think that will both allow us to isolate people who are sick. And that's a real nursing workforce um, issue, too, if we're going to develop these central isolation facilities that we need. Um but it's also going to help people understand the true case fatality rate. And right now we're looking at our most severe cases and the case fatality rates are quite upsetting. Upsetting and also providing fodder for the sort of contrarian voice about, um, you know, Everyone's saying we have to take these aggressive measures, but we've way overestimated our case fatality rates, so it's not mm. as, as drastic as people say. I think there's there's a desire to use that uh, absolutely overestimated case fatality ratio right now as a you know a sort of <laughs> to weaponize it as a, a reason to scale back on aggressive measures, which is horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying, especially as we're seeing data now in the U.S. showing 
more severe illness among younger people. Yes. And I think that changes the narrative. And certainly it's an extra motivation, I think, for all of us to participate actively in every public health measure um, we can participate in, including staying at home. And that's not to say that the earlier warnings about the vulnerability of elders and people with chronic illness should have been ignored. I was highly motivated by those warnings too, but now maybe a greater uh, proportion of the population will see this as relevant to them. And Allison, with your expertise in behavioral sciences and behavioral economics, what do you think about how people are interpreting the relevance of these warnings to them? Well, I think it was easy two or three weeks ago um, to to just say, oh, yes, it's dangerous. There are a lot of cases, but, you know, it really only seems to be <clears throat> bumping off, you know, the old, the old and the chronically ill as if like, okay, that's fine. We can just let them go. But when middle-aged folks who maybe have younger children, um, it just gets a lot scarier and a lot closer to home, right? You don't it's helpful if you can sort of wall off the risk as this is something that's going to happen to other people or to people who are already, you know, at higher risk of mortality. Suddenly when it's, this could be my spouse or this could be my kid, uh, you get you get people's attention a lot more um, and you start to um, engage people in protective behaviors, both for their own, you know, for their own risk. And, um, you know, we, we, we don't like to see kids die. Um, and we, I think we can get people engaged in individual level and sort of population level prevention easier, more easily when, um, when kids are at risk. What do you think about the um, celebrities who have come out and identified that they've tested positive? How do you think that influences behavior? I think it's helpful. So I think when we talked two weeks ago, had, had Tom Hanks already identified as a, as a case? Or maybe that happened right afterwards. I thought that was great. Um, my only concern was it appeared that they had very mild, um, you know, mild version of it. And I was almost worried that it might make people think like, oh, no big deal. See, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had it and they're fine. Um, but I think... Again, one one change from a couple of weeks ago. I think by this week, many, many, many more Americans have heard of someone who's a case. So maybe they maybe they've heard of a celebrity, but they also probably have a friend of a friend or a coworker of a coworker or a, you know a cousin's wife who has been has been diagnosed, and that also just just brings it home for people, um, whether it's a celebrity or not. Um, I, I think I just saw yesterday flying by on Twitter that Prince Charles is a case um, has been diagnosed, right. um, and you know we will you know we have we have a senator, we have um, you know more more people that people know personally, and more people that people know as as celebrities um, will have this, and they'll have it with varying degrees of severity and and varying outcomes, frankly. Right. One of the things I'm concerned about in terms of public response to this epidemic is that people are now feeling stressed about social distancing. They're feeling stressed at, about stay-at-home orders, and they feel like they've been working hard to comply. Yet we know that in the coming weeks, we're going to see an escalation in case counts, even though people have been engaging more in social distancing. And we know that this is going to happen because there's 
a backlog of people who were exposed two weeks ago who are just getting sick now and severity of illness increases with the number of days into the presentation of symptoms. So there's this delay between exposure and presentation with severe illness. So even though people have been working hard and they feel inconvenienced, they're going to get this feedback that looks like social distancing isn't working. So how do you think we can help people understand, keep doing what you're doing, even though in the next few days, it's going to look like it's not working? It's one of the trickiest things about managing these infectious disease outbreaks because of the incubation period, everything is lagged. Um, I think Tony, you know, Tony Fauci had this great quote. Um, let's see if I actually might have it up here. Yeah, when, he, said, he said, when you're dealing with an emerging infectious disease outbreak, you're always behind where you think you are. Um, and we saw this in, um, you know, people, people advocating for really aggressive measures when there were only a few dozen or a few hundred cases. Um, that's because they knew if, we're, if we've identified a few hundred cases, there are definitely a few thousand cases out there and will be even more um, in the next few weeks. So I think one thing that can help is good, clear, simple, visual representation of how effective those measures were in other settings. So we can't show yet the graphs, you know, that are over the peak. We can't show the cases dropping off yet here, but we can show how it worked in South Korea, in China, um, in places that did successfully shut down. And, and, and you can show people that lag, you know, very simply. You know, here's the day the schools closed. Here's the day businesses shut down. And see, 10 days later, you see we're, we're over the hump. Yeah. We have the so challenge in the U.S. in that we've, we, we haven't been doing this you know, all at the same time nationwide. So we're going to have individual regions, cities, states um, that have got done, you know, done these actions sooner than others. And hopefully those will be able to model um, for the states that still haven't had their big surge yet, um, how effective this can be. Right. And, and it'll also be interesting to see how effective our stay-at-home orders are, given that there are plenty of people still out in parks and it, it looks kind of crowded out my window sometimes and uh, that's a little upsetting. And when yeah. you look at data from some of these modeling studies, like in Singapore, which has done an incredible job uh, controlling their outbreak, they estimate that if we combine multiple public health measures, including isolation of the sick and quarantine of their contacts, including school closures, for example, we can reduce the incidence by over 90%, the incidence of new cases by over 90%, which is such really a dramatic reduction and an incredible public health success. But we have to work these angles if we're actually going to see those kinds of results. I think stories, like really good stories, are going to be helpful here. Um, I was just saying, you know, we should show people graphs and figures, but I think some really straightforward, brief stories about here's what, you know, San Francisco did, or here's what Santa Clara did, here's what um, that tiny city in Italy that just decided to sort of shut down and, and close off, um, here's what they were able to accomplish, and here's what, here's the lives we think were saved because of that. Right. And there are good graphs, actually, from Italy showing uh, what the city of Lodi was able to do with a lot of testing and with early intervention on social distancing. They were able to really flatten their curve compared to other cities that, uh, that initiated their 
public health measures just a couple days later. So being early matters. So for cities that feel like right now they're not being affected, my question is, why wouldn't you look at your uh, next closest large city that's ahead of you in this epidemic and say, let's shut it down now so that we never get to that point? You know, you have the luxury of seeing the crisis unfold elsewhere. So act now and protect your people. Pittsburgh, for example. Right. So do you how do you think Philadelphia has reacted to this? Do you think that we were ahead of the curve or do you want me to answer this question or else? Yeah, do you want to answer I think I think your sigh response. Said it all. <laughs> well, it's interesting because public health people have been sounding the alarm and watching China and other countries, Italy, other countries that have come before us. And we've wanted to act early. And I think in Philadelphia, now we have our stay at home order. And I'm so glad that our city did that. But it felt like a battle to get the city to, for example, cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade, which they then did. And I really applaud that. But then they allowed the informal St. Patrick's Day gatherings, the pub crawl to go yeah. on. And, and then they waited until Sunday to close restaurants and bars. And it was, and they were saying that they were doing that in order to protect the poor, which seemed so disingenuous to me. And I do understand and feel the pain for my friends who are proprietors of bars and restaurants because they are really hurting right now. But was it worth it to let business go on that weekend when we knew the virus was circulating in our community? Was it worth it to put our people and our health system at risk? I feel like that delay to me is emblematic of the profit, you know, the the impulse to save the economy over the impulse to save lives. And so our city came around and our city issued the stay at home order. And I'm so glad we did that. But I guess the nuance that epidemiologists have been talking about that the earlier you intervene, the better you slow the epidemic down, the more cases you will prevent. That's a nuance that maybe was lost to our policymakers. And right now um, in Pennsylvania, we rolled out the stay-at-home orders on a county level, Mm -hmm. which, okay, I applaud our governor because I think our governor has done a good job in leading But I also think that that's nonsensical to roll out this stay-at-home order on a countywide level when the virus really doesn't care where your county line is. That's my thought. I don't know. Allison, do you have additional thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of a call I had with a reporter yesterday who was looking at maps. Now there's beautiful maps, real-time maps online at the township um, level in Pennsylvania. And what the reporter wanted to know was a weird, to me, a weird question. He said, if you look at Delaware County, there are no cases in the city of Chester. And if you look in Montgomery County, there's no cases in Norristown. And, you know, I looked at the maps with the reporter and I said, you know, first of all, you're you're looking at a map where the zero case townships are in gray and all the other townships that have cases are in a different color. But a lot of those other townships are one case like the zero and the one 
aren't that different. And the, the, like the zero is gonna be one <laughs> very soon. Um, and you know, obviously this is a story about testing as well, like testing not happening. Uh, but I think the reporter was really looking for a story about like protective clusters or, you know, something that was different about this township versus the one next door. And I said, you know, the virus doesn't care about these township <laughs> boundaries. Um, you know, the, the, the virus will be, there are probably already cases in Norristown and Chester that just haven't been identified yet. And the way people move and social networks move, um, you know, that, these will these will all be aqua blue townships very very soon. Exactly, and it's just like the map of the U.S. when West Virginia was the holdout without any cases. Yes. And I was so was anchored on that. I totally anchored <laughs> on that. <laughs> I mean, it's the optimist in you that wants to believe. Okay, great. Like West Virginia is going to be okay. Well, you know what was happening with testing in West Virginia and Pennsylvania's right next door, and you know we're all connected. And so let's not have the illusion that there are these protective bubbles anywhere. You know, let's operate as if we're all connected and let's coordinate our policy responses so that we acknowledge that connectedness. And I, I have been impressed by parts of the country that have said we're going to have a regional approach rather than a state by state approach so that there's that recognition that state lines are meaningless in this case. And, you know, back to the health system question, um, you know, what happens in my community is going to affect our community and our healthcare system, but it's also going to have implications for your community and your healthcare system. So let's try to do whatever we can to shore up public health efforts in both places. Excellent points. There, There's just no way. And I, I mean, I almost wonder, Allison, if the story that you're reporter friend was missing was that both Chester and Norristown are fairly economically challenged places to live. Um, and Montgomery County as a whole and um, even Delaware and Chester County are not. Right. There's some fairly affluent places in there. So maybe what you're looking at is, you know, people who don't necessarily have the resources and or connections aren't getting tested. Well, and the exactly. early cases in both of those counties were in, um, you know, townships or regions of the county where people are likely to travel more, right? right. Um, and, and, and brought those cases back. Yeah, so not, not a surprise that the current snapshot of sort of the gradient of cases by township in both of those um, counties uh, are, you know, correlated with socioeconomic status. I was just, I was fascinated by the, the kind of over-anchor on the zero as something different from you know, from one or two cases. Totally. We all want to believe that there's some safe place to go. And that is a remarkable thing about this pandemic is that there's really no safe place to go besides staying at your home. And so I, it makes me think about the people who don't have the option and about how this epidemic is really going to affect low-wage workers, people um, who are doing the cleaning in healthcare facilities and you know, we talk about the personal protective equipment shortages, and I worry about shortages of personal protective equipment for hospital cleaning staff, too. And, you know, what are the other groups we should be thinking about right now who are particularly vulnerable? So I've been talking with um, my research collaborators and some other behavioral scientist groups uh, in South Africa. So South Africa's nationwide shutdown, which is being called a lockdown, goes into effect today. 
And our discussion was around, you know, can we find touch points in some provincial governments or city governments to talk about how you do this safely and effectively in, now I'm going to use township in a really different way than we use it in Pennsylvania, sort of sort of informal settlements um, in, in South Africa where much of the population lives. It's a really different question from, you know, how does Whole Foods arrange a line of people outside while the older people are shopping inside from 7 to 8 a.m. so people can keep their distance? I mean, when people are sharing much smaller quarters, sharing kitchens across families, um, really, really different circumstances, the advice for how you implement a, a stay-at-home or a lockdown order, it's, it's just a whole different ballgame. What do you recommend there? I mean, we're, so there's a lot of concern about um, increases in domestic violence, um, and how, how you sort of plan for that, um, how you advise people to organize shopping and, and, and food, um, food preparation. Um, I think we're just trying to think in a, in a savvy, sort of behaviorally informed way about how uh, policies can be designed, but also messaging and implementation to make this really context specific. Um, um, no, no answers there yet, only a, a keen desire to help. Yeah, and here in Philadelphia, uh, I'm heartened by the public health department's response. They're, they're being very creative and proactive, I think, and have recently identified a hotel, and I know they're looking right. at other sites as places where uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, who are ill, can be housed and relatively isolated from others. So shelter settings are going to be really difficult places to control outbreaks. All congregate living facilities are going to be very difficult places to control outbreaks. So I appreciate that the city is thinking about how to repurpose existing infrastructure for these important needs for vulnerable populations. That's great. I think there's been some creative work in California uh, on that as well, which has a very large statewide um, unhoused population. Are they also using hotels in California or yeah. other kinds of? Um, mm -hmm. Lots, again, just like the ICU capacity, just thinking really creatively about um, you know, where where are the, where is their space, where is their safe space, where is their capacity to um, to house folks? Yeah. It's going to be Marianne interesting to other... moving forward with, you know, the innovations that come out of this. Yes. And I, I tell you, I'm, I want to tip my hat to the um, engineers because they can take a sheet of plastic, a piece of foam, a roll of duct tape, <laughs> and, you know, whatever, whatever tools they have at hand in order to construct solutions. And I think people are doing that metaphorically in lots of different settings. And in some ways, I wish the public could see some of those preparation efforts because I think there's a prevailing narrative that hospitals are sitting and waiting for the influx of patients. And right. that really mm. couldn't be farther from the truth. Healthcare workers at all levels are trying to innovate and create solutions and anticipate, you know, how are we going to limit the number of healthcare workers who come into each infected patient's room? Okay, we're going to set up um, baby monitors or we're going to set up um, capacity to, you know, talk via computer from inside and outside the room. We're going to use telemedicine in the hospital setting. We're going to repurpose 
dormitories where, you know, people are sewing masks. There's just so many different ways that people are trying to concoct solutions and some of them are going to work and some of them aren't going to work. But I haven't seen anybody sitting around bored. People are not, you know, I can't believe how busy we are, even though I'm in the walls of my house, you know, all day long. I'm hearing my colleagues in all aspects of healthcare. I'm talking to, you know, my husband is on the, he's working with people on clinical trials and on getting serologic testing ramped up so that we can identify people who have immunity who will be very important to response and recovery efforts. So I wish people could see, and I wish I could see and be a fly on the wall where all of these teams are coming together from across so many disciplines to to figure out how are we going to get through this. And it takes every good mind and every willing person to help. What are yeah. some of the ways you're seeing, Allison, are you, are you hearing about other kinds of sort of unexpected workers who are stepping up to try to help? Uh, I have a, a wonderful colleague in um, Wisconsin, Malia Jones. Um, she and I are leading some social media efforts uh, called Dear Pandemic, where people can uh, sort of ask us questions and, and get some good info. But she was also tapped. Um, she's not an epidemiologist, but social science demographer, mad mapping skills. But she was tapped by the Wisconsin Army National Guard um, to help with modeling for uh, you know capacity, how might the National Guard um, support response efforts in state? And I was just thrilled to hear that um, there was that sort of partnership and call for expertise. Um, I think the you know the the Wisconsin Army National Guard was deployed, and the leadership there said, you know, we we need some guidance here on on what could be useful. Um, and she helped do some with with an economist colleague um, and another sort of public health uh, expert were able to contribute some really useful. Um, useful guidance on, you know, when, when are we going to see surge, what kind of stay at home, or as Wisconsin has called it, safer at home order, which I love. Um, uh, you know, how do we implement those? How drastic do they need to be? How long do they need to last um, to really support the efforts in that state? Very interdisciplinary. Cool. And, you know, I've, I've wished that I could have an ethicist on call, too, oh, yes. as we've talked about um, you know, there are going to be so many ethical challenges and just one of them that we've been thinking about is now that we're having these makers in our region create PPE, how do we decide who gets the PPE? There's such a demand for it. How are we going to allocate it? And right now, workers in hospitals are trying to sort them out, sort that out themselves. They're trying to figure out you know, who gets the N95 mask, um, who's going to be the person to interact most closely with the uh, patients with COVID-19. So I, it's amazing how those skills that we tend to think of as soft skills become really critical life-saving skills in a situation like this. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Carolyn. And it's been that's the the one silver lining that I think Allison was was hoping to find in all of this is is this stuff everyone coming together and and working together to try and come up with really creative solutions. Yeah, and I really value the colleagues I have who just say yes. Like 
we have this <laughs> problem. Do you want to help? Yes. You know, what a gift when people are just like, whatever I can do, I want to do it. And uh, people who see the opportunity before they see the barrier, that's a real, that's an amazing trait to be able to call on in a time like this. And I, I want to thank all of our colleagues for showing us the yes, like showing us, yes, we're going to find a way, we're going to do this. And I'm very, very grateful for that. People have been very generous with their skills, whatever those skills are. Um, I, I think the, the resources that have been shared for, you know, trying to homeschool your kid have been extraordinary. Um, the people who have kind of logistics expertise or, you know, a lot of neighborhood expertise rallying to make sure that, you know, older folks or, or, or disabled folks can get, um, you know, get their groceries. Just, you know, people, people are, I think are great at, at seeing right now, what am I good at and where can I plug that in to help out? And that's, it's, it's extraordinary. It is also amazing. Allison works a lot on behavior change and I do too. I could tell you the difference at my neighborhood farmer's market from one week to the next. So um, I guess two weeks ago, I got to the farmer's market early and there were quite a few people there. So I mentioned to a neighbor, I'm going to stand back and wait until the crowd thins out and then I'll go in just to try to give people some distance. And she was angry and she said, oh. I'll make my own choices. Thanks. And I said, okay, you know, I was just suggesting it out of concern. And she said, I don't need the hostility. And I thought, okay, well, actually, I'm, I probably seemed anxious because I'm concerned, but she was probably anxious too. And that's why she snapped. But then the next week, I got to the farmer's market and there was a stretched out line all the way around the park. <laughs> um, and, and the farmer's market had implemented these policies they had marked with chalk on the sidewalk six foot apart markings so that the line could be controlled they had a hand washing station at the entrance to the tent and they asked people to wash their hands and then the people who were staffing the market touched the produce and gave it to people in their own bags and the shoppers didn't touch anything and only one person was allowed in the tent at a time. So what that said to me is it's very difficult for people to establish a new social norm overnight around social distancing, very mm -hmm. difficult for people to change behavior. But if we can put in place some signals that this is what we want people to do and policies really at this micro level, you know, this is one tiny farmer's market, it helps people to change their behavior and it helps to remove some of that social friction uh, that happens when we try to negotiate yes. these things on a one-off level. Yeah, that's a great story and probably a great place for us to, to end it. So I want to appreciate, I really appreciate you, both of you taking the time to talk to us. I know that you're incredibly busy with everything that's going on but you're a wealth of knowledge and it's it's really important that we we get that out to everyone. Good luck everybody. I know every new day brings new challenges, so I hope you know, I hope you feel ready for it and I'm thankful that you're doing this work. Stay safe and stay sane. Yeah, yeah you too. Take care. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Di Donato and Marion Leary. 
and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through.